Hey, this is Bill DeMott, and you're listening to the Pro Wrestling Post Podcast. You are listening to the Pro Wrestling Post Podcast with your host, Mark Madison. This episode's guest is former WWE and WCW superstar, Bill DeMott. Visit ProWrestlingPost.com for interviews, blogs, and upcoming events in your area. You can also find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever podcast app you prefer. And now, here's Mark Madison. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome everyone to that is listening to the Pro Wrestling Post podcast. I am your host, Mark Madison, but I am joined by a very special guest, um, former WCW superstar, former WWE superstar, um, trainer extraordinaire, Mr. Bill DeMott. Again, Bill, thank you again for your time and your energy. Hey, thank you, Mark. I appreciate being on here. I've I've been looking forward to this. Thank you very much. Awesome, awesome. Um, You know, in in order to move forward, it also comes a time where you kind of appreciate where you've been. Maybe you could share a little bit from the learning tree and umbrella that you worked under Johnny Rods, uh, what he taught you that you carried throughout the duration of your career. And I try to, uh, or at least I, I feel like I try to make sure that I always thank my my coach because Johnny was the type of coach that um, he taught you about the business as he was teaching you the business. If that makes sense, I mean he spent a lot of time. Uh, I was I was in a fortunate group of guys and a class of guys like Taz and uh, Damien Demento and, and, you know, Public Enemy come through there and the Headhunters came through there and and uh, Tommy Dreamer and, and you know, the Dudleys came through there. And, and, you know, we were in a time when Johnny was really, really, really hands-on and ran you through the, ran you through the day-to-day training. But the more important thing for me with Johnny was the, the car rides of the conversations about the business. I feel like Johnny always tried to prepare us for the business itself, not just the bumps, not just the, you know, here's the gear you should wear, and here's kind of character building stuff, but I always felt like he tried to prepare us for what the business was about and what else came with it other than the bumping and things like that. So I always always felt like I tried to do that for everyone that um, I've come in contact with. And, and you know, Sometimes it comes across that way, and sometimes years later, I've had guys say to me, "I get it now." You know, they, you know, sometimes what you get into pro wrestling for isn't exactly what you think it is. But um, that's my long answer to saying that's the thing that Johnny taught me, and I tried to continue to do that for uh, up and comers, guys and girls that you know that are getting into the business or want to pursue it in a more serious manner. Um, when you said Johnny kind of prepared you for the business, what kind of, if you felt comfortable sharing, uh, kind of things that he bestowed upon you, what kind of things did, uh, in any of the conversations, scenarios that kind of played itself out that, yeah, even yourself said, oh yeah, I get it. I know what Johnny's talking about. What kind of things, um, insights did he share with you specifically? I'm not sure I got it right away either, but as, as my career started to play out, I understood the quote-unquote stories or the you know the Johnnyisms, which I now affectionately call Billisms. <laughs> in my career, 
you know, and, and people who know me, they go, oh, there's another billism, and I don't get it. And I always tell them, you may not get it today, but you'll get it down the road. But when you started traveling and, you know, day after day, you're trying to make a living in the, in the, in the business. Um, he was just setting you up for that, for the drives, for the hotels, for the how you should present yourself, how you should act, that being early is being late, and, and, and being prepared, and being a gym guy, and being a study guy, and, and knowing knowing the business instead of just going in there with um, some athletic ability and thinking people are going to fall all over you. So he was, he, I think he turned a lot of us into businessmen as much as he did turning us into pro wrestlers. Do you think that's lost a lot of times today? Um, training schools just kind of take your money, and anybody can teach you to do a back body drop, but Johnny was uh, sets himself apart from that? Well, I think there's a lot of good schools out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this, is, this is probably where not only myself, but a lot of guys get themselves in trouble because there's, there's a lot of guys that can open a, a wrestling school because they've you know, they've done some, they've been a part of a school or they've been a student there long enough where they could probably lead through the basic, you know, and I say basically in the fundamental calisthenics and things like that, but ultimately you'd want to be in a school where there's, where there's notoriety. Like, I feel like your, your coach, your trainer had to have been somewhere and done something in, in, in the business. And I'm not saying you had to headline WrestleMania. I'm just saying you have you have to have that, I think, that, that background, too. And there's a lot of good guys out there that know this business and are very good at it. But I think there's also people who capitalize on the fact that, hey, in this area there's not a wrestling school, let me open one. And they want to jump off the ropes, let them jump off the ropes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, that, I think that's the problem with keeping keeping your students for any amount of time is you can only do so much of them and they, they start to get smart to that and they move on themselves. Um, but I think, that, I think that stuff is lost a little bit. Yeah. And again, I guess that's my opinion, but I think that stuff is lost where the people that want to spend the time with you to do that, I think a lot of the up-and-comers and the, and the new breed um, feel like that's not part of it. Let me just, let me hit the triple Lindy. If I can hit the triple Lindy, then I'm just as good as Ricochet, and they're going to take me. Well, people should learn Ricochet's story first before they just assume they can do the triple ending. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I, yeah, I think it's lost. That, that's my short answer. I think it's lost. Yeah. Um, it really does take a special kind of person, though, to kind of persevere, right? I mean, if they're not going to put that extra effort, that extra... You know, what sacrifices are you willing to do? How important is it to you? It's almost like a question that it has to be self-reflecting to the person and they walk away with it. Yeah. I mean, here's a perfect example to me. It's a Juice Robinson. You know, yep. formerly known as DJ Parker. I mean, he, he came in early on as a really, really young kid. I think he was barely 20 years old or whatever he was. And he just had a heart for it. He wanted to learn and he had capabilities and he's a smart kid and now everything he's learned since being gone from the system is invaluable to him and he's and he's smarter and he's better and uh, i would say he's got another run coming up whenever he feels like he, he he wants to do that again but he's making his money and he's 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 learned his lessons and now he's you know he's doing his thing but that's ultimately that's it you have to be happy with what you're doing first 
where you're worried about moving on or becoming the next big thing or whatever. You have to be happy with it and enjoy it and want to put the time in. Oh, certainly. I, but like, and to mention Juice, I mean, where he's been, his promos are just electric. Like how they come across now stateside where what he's doing in Japan is just extraordinary. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a big fan of his in and out of... Uh, in and out of the ring, so every, anytime I get to catch up on some of the stuff he's doing, I watch it, and I just have a smile on my face and thinking, yeah, man, keep, keep doing your thing. <laughs> awesome. Um, I gotta ask, where did the concept of Crash the Terminator come from? And... Go ahead. No, 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 go. I, I'm, I'm just curious, like, the concept, the, you know, what it could it have been, what, you know, was it just not meant to be very much? Is it just kind of you getting your feet wet? It was, it was brought up, um, I forget what year I started. I started in 1988, and Eddie Mansfield was, um, anybody who doesn't know Eddie Mansfield, Google him. Uh, he's in wrestling history. Um, Eddie, Eddie was a friend of Johnny's, and Eddie had a project and one of the projects was for a character named Crash. Um, and that that project never came about. But what had happened is around the same time, I could be off a couple months or something, around the same time there was a tour in Germany, and uh, the World Warrior Animal pulled out, and they were looking for a, for a lookalike to kind of at least appease the people, the German crowd. So um, that was my first trip ever, my first, wrestling for, especially out of the country, mm-hmm. and uh, the late, great Ted Petty shaved my head in a mohawk and painted my face, and I was known as Crash the Terminator from then on out. Oh, that's that's fun. That's fun. Um, and it, you know, people who knew me as, as, because my, you know, know uh, a little bit of shock to a lot of people, maybe, my first wrestling name, my work name, my gimmick name was Big Sweet William. So oh. people who knew Big Sweet William, all of a sudden they heard about this Crash guy, and then I walk into the locker room and go, what are you doing here? Well, I'm Crash. And they go, get the hell out of here. <laughs> so it was, always, it was always funny to me how people never put two and two together. Uh, where did Big Sweet come from? How did, where, where did that name? Big Sweet, Johnny Rods used to introduce me to everyone as Bill William. I don't think he knew my last name, and that was fine. <laughs> But he called me Bill Williams, and you know he, he's like you know he's big, he's big you know he's big, big sweet Williams, and it turned out to be I think it was Bushwhacker Luke. His original his original name was Big Sweet William. Hmm. So I took on the name Big Sweet William, which is the same name as a flower, and at you know six two three hundred pounds, I wore hot pink with a flower as my logo, and I became Big Sweet William. Interesting. That's pretty fun. Um, never knew that. Thanks for sharing. That and the fact that I had no idea what my what my character was. Yeah. So when he called me Big Sweet William, I figured, well, there's there's a wrestling name, and I tried to do everything that Adrian Adonis and Jim Neidhart and all the big guys were doing, and combined it all into one. Yeah, yeah. But would you say it had more of an edge than those guys, or it was more? I, I, I don't think. Sweet William had an edge. I think, <laughs> I think, I think he tried like hell, 
but uh, he was still trying to figure it out. Um, I enjoyed being being on the bad side of the line because of my size and wearing the hot pink and acting the way I did. It was very, it had heelish tendencies, but I didn't understand it at the time. So I think, you, you know, I was uh, just going with whatever reaction I had at, at the moment. Well, and no one's going to cross, you know, a 300-pound guy wearing pink. I, I dare you. Yeah, I double-dog. <laughs> I double-dog dare you. Um, maybe uh, you could share, like, you no, know, uh, some may not be aware that there were early tryouts with the WWE before your time in WCW. Is that correct? Right. Um, yeah. Okay, so this is almost like moving a little bit forward, but moving a little bit back and trying to connect them. Um, how did how did you find that those early tryouts went, and um, did you carry any of the Johnny Rod experience and knowledge with you before, uh, Johnny, during, and after? Yeah, Johnny um, sent myself and Phil Dees, who was Mondo Clean, uh, later became Damien Demento. Mm-hmm. Johnny would send us and get us in as extras to the WWF uh, shows when they were in town. So we were put in front of uh, Jay Strongbow and Pat Patterson and, and whatever the agents were then. And you, you got to remember, that was a time when there was a lot of big boys in the locker room. So here come these big, you know, we were, we were as I say, we were greener than goose shit, Bill and I. But we were big, burly guys. So we were getting stared down like, well, who are these, who are these guys and where do they think they're going to be here? Hmm. So we actually never worked as extras. So our first couple of, at least for me, my first couple of experiences were, wow, this is going to be a hard nut to crack, you know, because it's a very closed club. Um, but we had, and I always say, we had no business being sent there. It was just Johnny doing something to get our, get our faces seen, but we were in no way, shape, or form prepared to to do anything for them. I, I, I remember my first time, I don't think I was, I, I could put three bumps together in a row. So oh. we just had that, we just had that big man uh, look to us, which was in, you know, we saw us standing next to each other. We were impressive. We were in Zubaz, and we had mohawks, and we had goatees, and we looked like we could rip your face off. Uh, um, but later, as it, as it turned out, my first, I had a tryout. Jerry Jarrett had brought me in. And I think my first tryout experience, I was brought at the same time as Duke the Dumpster Drosty. And, uh... After that weekend, I didn't hear any more and then found out they hired him, which was okay with me because I, I didn't, I never looked at it as, well, what would they hire that guy for and not me? I just yeah. figured he had something something to offer that I didn't. That and the fact he was six foot six or whatever the hell he was. Uh, and then I had a couple of a couple of other times where I, I was brought up to the, towards the, uh, the Pennsylvania border and worked some events and fortunate enough to go on before Tatanka and Luger, and I, I took a crowbar with me one time, and we tore the house down. I hit it with the backflip, and Bigelow and all those guys, like, you know, all those uh, that I knew those guys, and, and everybody was really cool, and then we got yelled at for doing that right before the main event, We, you know, but how dare we, you know, do something before the main event. You see, I, I'd heard... I'd heard about that. About well, not that specifically, but uh, the company being very protective about the main event and like don't upstage it. And and to me, rightfully so. Hmm. And I I so my lessons with Johnny, all the things I learned that you know you you, 
you don't take away from the main event, you build towards it. And the cards that we worked on as independent guys, I totally didn't even come into play with that because this was my tryout. So I was going to put my best foot forward. Yikes, yeah. And I did that. And then later on down the line, here I am being the guy that's telling guys who have uh, unbelievable talent, you don't need to do that every night, you know. So it was another, everything to me was a learning curve. Mm-hmm. But I was prepared every time I went. I knew how to be a professional. I knew, you know, uh, a lost artist speaking Carney, which nobody does anymore, and I probably screwed it all up. But we were, you know, we were we were hit to all that stuff, man. We were we were well well groomed. Um, and every time I, I did have a, an opportunity, I was, I was prepared, and uh, I believe I did my best with it, and it just kept helping us. Well, at least it kept helping me get booked and move on to different different places. Did you ever ask Johnny, you know, I you you knew that you weren't necessarily ready while he sent you up there? Yes. <laughs> I knew I wasn't ready. No, no, I know you weren't, but did you ever ask him why he sent you? No, I think I, I mean I knew why. We looked the part. Oh, you looked the part. Extras. I mean, Jay Strongbow told me one time. He goes, "I can't get my kid on the show, but if you want to put on black tights and put him over, I'll keep you here." And I was like, "Well, hell no, that's not what I came here for." Right. I didn't say that out loud. No, no. But in the grand scheme of things, I was grateful we weren't used because we weren't ready, and it probably would have left left a lasting impression on the name and going, oh, no, it's that guy again. So I felt like when I actually did get into a WWE ring, WWF ring, I was prepared. But those first couple of times we went, I was scared to death. I mean, it was nerve-wracking. I mean, we were there three hours before the, the trucks showed up and we were waiting in the arena parking lots, and it was like, come on, dude, let's just go home. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um. One of the, the guys that you'd cross paths with and you've worked with, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, please, um, Kevin Sullivan um, said yeah. to have taken a real liking to you. How did that uh, relationship initially develop? Um, and, you know, what did you learn moving forward and working with Kevin? I met Kevin in Japan. He had come for one of the tours, one of the in-between tours with um, the wing promotion. And I met Kevin there and actually knew who he was and, you know, just took a life to change. And Kevin, to me, is just a, a, a down guy, he's pretty honest as the day is long. And he just, uh, anytime somebody wanted to drop knowledge on me, I took advantage of it. So he just, I guess he just took a liking. And, and don't forget, you know, it's that thing of six foot two, three hundred fifty pounds with, with some agility and, you know, some, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it because it sounds funny coming to me, but with, with a little something to offer, you know, big, big men with agility are, are hard to come by. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and really what happened was I met him a bunch of times. He had a long famous week, you know, uh, in Japan and stuff. We went to Smoky Mountain, uh, I think, once and did some filming there. He brought us in for that. And, uh, Kevin was one of the catalysts to getting us into the original... Eastern Championship Wrestling when Eddie Gilbert was running it. Uh, and then, uh, ultimately, I mean, it came in, in it's no secret uh, that Orndorff and Vader got into a big fight in WCW. Vader was sent away. I got a phone call, and it literally, the phone call literally went like this. 
<laughs> Are you still wrestling? Yes, I am. Be on a plane to Macon, Georgia tomorrow. You're coming to work for me. And I went, yeah, okay, whatever. And called the airport, and there was a ticket waiting for me, and I got on a plane, and I met uh, Kevin Sullivan, Eric Bischoff, and Hulk Hogan in the Macon Coliseum bathroom. We shook hands, and I was part of WCW. So I, I ran into him. I got to know him. He got to know me. He saw something in me. Um, and even even in our time in WCW, Kevin Kevin was never shy about being honest. If I stunk to join out or if I needed to do something more or if I wasn't living up to expectations, he always came to me right away and, and told me straight away. And I appreciate that. And I did my best to never let him down. Um, and I appreciate everything he's ever done for me. I, I, you'll never hear in the past or in the present or anything a bad word about Kevin Sullivan for me because, and the same with a lot of people, because he always gave me an opportunity. So, But I learned a lot from Kevin in and out of the ring, and I liked him as a person in that same mentality of screw it, and, you know, ask for forgiveness later, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, Kevin was a big teacher of mine. I appreciated my time with Kevin. Uh, do you still connect with him at all? you ever get a chance to... Yeah. Every time I see him, the first thing he says, he goes, still not eating salad, huh? <laughs> and I say, nope, because every time I see him, he's got a big smile, and, you know, I get a big hug from, from the taskmaster, and uh, I enjoy that five minutes in passing in an airport or meeting at a convention or something. Uh, nothing but love and respect for Kevin Sullivan. He is a legend, no doubt. He's a legend. Um, often it's said uh, a wrestler's success uh in, in traits of their character is, you know, whatever you see on television, it's themselves churned up to 10 or a hundred or whatever number you want to use. Um, how are traits of Bill DeMott reflected in the, the laughing man persona, the much angrier humorous and the misfit in action? The, to me, they're all, everything's one and the same. I was, the laughing man came about because I was, I was so nervous. I was asked to cut a promo about Randy Savage. So I felt like a little schoolgirl going, <laughs> and uh, so I laughed because I didn't know what to say. And uh, the guy at the time who was running the, the promo session was Terry Taylor. And he said, can you do it again? And I said, what part? He goes, the whole thing. So I just laughed again. And that's just a kind of a part that's just a little side because, you know, I, I don't think it's, a surprise to the people that know me. I'm a little bit left of sane at times. I have a weird sense of humor. I find things, you know, I find things that most people find serious. I find to be funny. Um, so I, I got to be myself, but I was told early on that your point is everything who you are, but times 10, you have to, it has to be you to be believable. And then you kind of, you know, turn, turn up the wattage a little bit. Yeah. So it was the same because the laughing man ultimately became Hugh Morris. And then Hugh Morris ultimately became, you know, General Erection. And at that time in my career, General Erection was a guy who was frustrated and looking for an opportunity. And, hey, if you can be this guy, we're going to give you an opportunity. And I wanted to go, I've been this guy for seven years. But whatever, you know, whatever it took to get there. So, and I say to people a lot of times, well, I work best as a heel or I work best as a baby. I, and I tell people, I don't understand what that means. 
because if you if you just put yourself in one category, you're never gonna succeed. You're never gonna grow. Mm-hmm. And so I just took a directive from whoever was in charge at the time. This is kind of what we're looking for. And ultimately, build the mod was introduced to the world from tough enough. And that's simply them saying, can you be you all the time when the red light is on times 10? Well, build them up pretty, for the people who know me, I'm just, you know, I'm not loud all the time. I'm not quiet, but I just do my thing. But if you study times 10, then I'm going to give you 10 times the energy I would. So it became that drill sergeant mentality and, and the things that I've learned and, and how it came to be. And, but then that's how people, the good and the bad is that's how people remember you. Mm-hmm. And then that's the assumption people make of you without even knowing you. So I always said if you're good at what you do, people will never understand who the real you is. They just, they just judge you by your character. Um, you, may, you bring up a really interesting point about a guy, uh, a guy or girl, whomever it might be, it, it, that might come by and say that they're only successful if they're a, pers- a specific type, whether a face or a heel. Um, yeah. Do you think it takes a real special talent to say, like, I, I don't know, I, I could never see Ravishing Rick Root as anything but a heel. And I could never see Ricky Steamboat as anything but a face. But um, does it really take something special for them to be able to transition from heel to face seamlessly by while remaining themselves or I just think it's it's that some people would say it's the difference between a smile and a and a grimace, you know? Mm. But I could so see Ricky Steamboat as a heel because you spend time and I've been fortunate enough to know Ricky and got to train with him and watch him train and to see him get intense Ooh, buddy. I mean, it's something he believes in. So as a baby face, it's passion, and mm-hmm. as a heel, it's intensity, you know? So I always found it was, the, it, was a, it was a fine line between, you know, Hulk Hogan as a baby face or an NWO heel. What was the difference? It was just the way he carried himself. The work never changed. The promo verbiage changed from time to time. But it was the same work, and that's the thing that I always focused on with everyone. Well, I don't know how to work like a heel. Your work isn't going to change. You may not smile. I may hold your hair as a heel and punch you in the face. You know, there's little things that would change, but I, I just felt like people were always so so caught up in, well, I don't know how to be a baby face, or I don't know how to be a heel. Interesting. But to me, it's the difference between a grimace and a smile. Hmm. They're two Bubba sides of the same coin. Bubba Ray. Yep. People love him, and he thanks them for it. Or people hate him, and he tells them to piss off. And you know, we I, I got to I got to run with guys that the lessons were. Hey, in Tennessee, you may be over as a babyface, but uh, in Charlotte, they're going to hate your guts, and you got to act accordingly. And those were the lessons that we got to learn. You know, those were the when you're running with the you know the, the horsemen, and you're running with Anderson and and those guys. You got to learn those lessons, you know, as, you know, we, we learned as we earned. And I feel like that's lost a little bit nowadays, but I think that was the thing. And my work never changed. It's just, as a heel, you're more intense, and as a baby face, you're more passionate about the things you're doing. Oh, fantastic. Um, how did you find, you know, where we've gone moved throughout kind of your time in WCW, but that transition between... WCW to WWE, the the company, the purchase, all of that moving over. How did you find that um, prof- personally, professionally? 
um, that experience? I, I didn't, um, again, everybody has an opinion on it. Uh, there were a lot of guys who had a hard time with the transition mm-hmm. because they left, they left WCW um, being treated or being able to act a certain way in and out of the locker room or putting, putting together matches or lack of putting together matches or wanting to work with other people. Uh, and when you got to WWF at the time, I think I didn't think it was understood by everybody that we were starting over. You know, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the talent I feel came in like they know who I am. I'm over. They'll adjust to me, and I just never took that attitude towards it. It was their locker room. It was there was for the twenty guys that were coming in. There were thirty guys still trying to get TV time. So you know, realize that you're walking into something you're not going to be well received in anyway. Mm-hmm just for the simple business standpoint of it. And I think it would have behooved a lot of a lot of people to come in a little more humble um, and realize that we were coming into someone else's, you know. If, I, if I'm with the New York Giants for six years and I'm an all-pro, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but you, you're not going to walk into the Cowboys locker room and act like, you, you know, your shit don't stink and expect everybody to just, you know, let you do your thing. You're going to have to earn your stripes now as a cowboy. So we have to earn our stripes now as WWF superstars because the way they did business was a lot different than WCW. Just like with anybody else, I'm sure, like, nerves are elevated, but then it's a matter of proving yourself, I guess. I'm thinking to yeah. those that are there, right? Yeah, and, and, and it, was the, it was the fact that you should have wanted to prove yourself so people didn't just go off of what they heard or what they watched or what other people told them about you, we had an opportunity to prove who we really were. And you did. And and it was evident uh, throughout the time that you were there. This is Eddie Edwards, and you are listening to the Pro Wrestling Post Podcast. I had a chance to recently speak with uh, Ryback, and he spoke quite like highly of yourself and about the <laughs> mental... And the mental toughness that you put him through. Um, I wish almost I had the audio clip to play for you. Um, you know, he said everything you heard about it being boot camp is is true. But he's like, uh, Bill was just weeding out the people that, you know, probably were going to quit at some point. But at the same time, he found the time so invaluable. Um, and I'm, I'm just sharing that with you. And he still, he says that you two, you know, from time to time will connect. And it's more like, how are you doing? Yeah. But not... But not so much, you know, about what he needs to improve on. Um, can you speak about, you know, why mental preparation today, uh, like, is so apparent? He talked about both uh, himself and the Miz coming under your learning tree, and why, you know, those were the two that. He, and he still talks about his relationship with the Miz, and how that's helped, and how you've helped, and um, how you and along with Tom Pritchard. Uh, were so you know pertinent and important to his learning. Terry Taylor, I think, as well. Um, why is that mental toughness so important today, where competition is everywhere? If you're not, I, I, and again, this is a billism. This is a build them up theory that maybe doesn't apply to a lot of people, or people don't buy into, and that's fine mm-hmm. because wrestling is an opinion. But in in life too, once the physical's gone. Or 
once you can't hang physically, or once you can, your body can no longer take the 20, 25 minute live event matches, are you mentally prepared to adjust your career to that? Are you mentally prepared for the conversations? Have you been preparing yourself, not only physically, because Ryback is built like a house, always has been, always will be. And one of the biggest things with Ryan, who, by the way, is one of my favorite people, because we got to have disagreements and we got to have those things of, oh, Bill, you're full of crap, but I'm not doing it anymore, and my thing was fine, and this is what's going to happen. But when you get to have a conversation with a grown man who years later goes, oh, my gosh, it's like the V8 commercial. You hit yourself in the head and say, I could have had a V8. <laughs> I always say, I don't care when it makes sense. As long as it's some, in some way, shape, or form, it makes sense somewhere down the line. Um, and I, and, and I, guess it's, I guess it's a little braggadocious. But I get a lot more of those text messages and phone calls and emails than people would think of someone a couple of years down the line going, son of a gun, coach, I get it, and I appreciate it. But back to, back to Ryback, he, he was built great. He was an athlete, and I didn't want him coming in just thinking that because he looked good, he was going to be successful. You've got to be able to play this game, and play this game means coming in every day and busting your butt, and when your body breaks down, can your mind get you through it? Can you get yourself through any situation? Can you learn to cut a better promo? Can you learn to adjust your workouts on the road because you can't go home and cook six pounds of chicken breast? You're going to have to eat a Whopper once in a while. You're going to have to, you know, do these things. You're going to have to sleep in a bed that you didn't want to sleep in. You're going to have to rent a car that, that's not a Cadillac. You know what I mean? You're mm -hmm. going to have to do these things. And you saw the guys and the girls that took to that and understood it because, they, you know, you have a love-hate relationship with them. But my, my uh, attack to that or my, my position on the whole thing was, man, it goes back to Johnny Rod. I want to help you succeed because I've been there. I understand better than most what happens behind the scenes, what happens in front of the camera, what's being talked about in production meetings, what's talked about being in creative, what's talked about can this guy be a media person, is he reliable, can they be on time, do they dress well, do they speak well, do they act like idiots, are they going to get in trouble, are they, are they long haulers, are they short-termers, and so, but you don't have the time to explain all that to them, so you just go at it every day and, and hopefully a little bit of it sticks. Um, that and the fact that we share the same birthday, that's what makes Ryback one of my favorite people. <laughs> no doubt. And what birthday would that have to be? He, he developed over the years, he developed his opinion of the business. He was successful. And when he thought it wasn't going the way it should go or whatever, he was a businessman who made a business decision. He wasn't an athlete going, screw you, I can go somewhere else. He had a game plan. He runs a successful business now. Mm -hmm. And he's happy. And at the end of the day, if you're happy and you're doing what you love to do, and something that we did in, in our time together made sense to them, that's 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 success. So, and it, it, I feel good to hear that people, you know, have a, have some kind of fond memory. And yeah, it was. I'll be the first to tell you, I wasn't brought in for my impish grin and boyish charm, like the Miz would say. <laughs> I was. 
I was brought in and continue to be brought in to, to get people to work to their ability, see what that is, and see what they have past it. That's been my job. It'll always be my job. I embrace it. Um, and the, the ones who are really there for whatever reason to move on and get better understand it, sometimes it takes a few years down the road. And sometimes it takes being apart, away from that person. But uh, I'm always grateful to hear that kind of feedback. But Ryan, Ryan, he was a student of the game, and he it, it did he did understand it, and he, you know, he's successful now in what he's doing. So I'm happy for him. Well, just I just want to be able to share that with you because he's definitely paying it forward and, and in sharing with you. Thanks. So um, you def- you definitely made quite the impact on him. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, the measure of a man is not how they face tragedy, but how they come out on the other side, um, uh, a better person, um, a stronger person because of it. Um, as a father myself, um, I couldn't even imagine what you've been through, but I do want to ask, um, what are, so if those listening can get a true understanding of what the Carey Foundation is, um, its intentions and goals and, uh, what you want to make others aware of as it as it's, um, we, yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure if it makes you better. I think I'm stronger. I'm less, I'm less than stronger. Hmm. Um, I wish I could be stronger. Um, so we're coming up October will be three years, uh, without my daughter. Yeah. Um, we started the foundation in her name because of who who she is as a person. Um, she had a smile for everyone. My kids uh, mean the world to me. And to watch them grow up and become the kind of people that they're becoming is everything to my wife and myself. So when this family suffered this tragedy, we had um, two options, really, and that was to sit in the corner in the dark or to find a way to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else. So the long and short of it is we started the foundation. It's just about a year and a half old officially now. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I travel now the nation speaking to middle schools, high schools, universities, law enforcement agencies, uh, uh, corporate events, um, about decisions. I don't talk about drunk driving. Um, I talk about decisions. I talk about social media, texting, emailing, bullying, the effects of social media. Um, and I, I leave everyone with the decisions that we make determine the stories that will be told about us. And then I introduce, and then I introduce my daughter and my family. Um, so we're, we keep broadening our horizons. Here in Florida, we travel the state. We've been to Alabama. We're getting ready to uh, crossing our fingers as we're waiting for final notice on Xavier University in Ohio, Lackawanna College in Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, Iowa, and California as well. I want these kids to know there's more out there for them than what they think. I want them to understand the repercussions 
somewhere down the line of a decision they make now early on. And I want them to know that they have more to offer than they can ever realize. And, and the things they do affect a community and affect others that they may probably will ne never even meet. And I said uh, in an interview last year, I think on TV, that wrestling prepared me for that. Because I've traveled the world, I see the effects that wrestlers and sports entertainers have on the world and have on people and the good they do. And I know who my daughter is. And I owe my family to where I have to make sure that her message and her mission is done. I have a nine-year-old son that I have to set the tone for. I have a 25-year-old daughter that is ready to take on the world, and she needs that guidance. And we've reached so many thousands and thousands of law enforcement. And, and, the, and, and I spoke on the Senate floor, and to be working in the government system and trying to change the laws and strengthen things and make communities safe, I mean, uh, that's, that's my job as a dad. So on October 10th, 2015, my world changed forever. And I want to make sure that I can help others so it doesn't happen to them. And you should be definitely commended for that. I'm sure Carrie's looking down and smiling at you, saying thanks, Dad. She's always got that smile on her face. Oh, no doubt. Um, before we do let you go, um, I did have a question for you. Um, a couple more questions. I, I couldn't help. But um, what do you foresee for the Bill DeMott experience uh, for the balance of 2018 and beyond? And not just the Bill DeMott experience, but um, Bill DeMott. Well, I, 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 have the, I have the uh, honor. I always say I'm blessed. So for, for everyone else out there too, so a lot of people we don't we don't get to talk about this. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a follower, and I have the opportunity to work within the Christian community and share that message with kids and adults. And I think what's going to happen coming up is, and I get to still go to seminars. I'm in uh, San Antonio with the Texas Wrestling Academy in September, um, doing a, a seminar down there with Rudy Boy and. Uh, I still keep my finger on the pulse of wrestling because wrestling gave me my life. Uh, it gave me opportunities that I never would have had staying in that small town I grew up in in New Jersey. But there's big things happening, and whether it's running for government office or if it's getting back into getting back into um, sports entertainment a little bit more or whatever it is, there's nothing that's not that can't be accomplished. As long as we keep, as long as we keep our head on swivel and can keep moving forward, and the biggest thing for that is, I always try to remember that there's someone else out there going through the same thing, and I apply that to wrestling, I apply that to life, I apply that to baseball, I apply it to everything. In my house, there's one rule, and it's wrestling rules. There's wrestling rules in life, and we live by those wrestling rules, and it's how I've lived my life for 30 years on the road. And good things are happening. It's, it's no longer the Build DeMont experience. It's the DeMont family experience. It's the Carrie Ann DeMont Foundation experience. And my daughter and my kids are going to change the world. 
and I get to be their voice for now. So uh, that's what I look forward to. That's what gets me up every day. And then I get to share stories with, with, with guys like you, Mark, and, and do some interviews from time to time. And I've always said this, and I, I, I want to say it again. I thank the wrestling community for wrapping its arms around me and my family during all of this and for the support from all the guys and girls who shoot us messages and tweets and things like that. Uh, it, it means more than they'll ever know to hear from friends on the road because I miss it. I miss being full-time on the road. Um, but I, I, it's one of those things. They say everything happens for a reason. Uh, I'm still working on what those reasons are, but I, I know I have uh, bigger fish to fry, as they would say. So, mm. But I always want to be thankful to the fans and to the wrestling community and, as they say, the wrestling universe. Fantastic. Um, before we let you go, though, Bill, we were just curious if you'd be interested in taking part in a little game. All right. Okay, so the game we do here is a pro wrestling podcast exclusive. We just do it here. Um, so when this interview, you know, at least the, the text version of it, is available online, this portion wouldn't be accessible. So the game is called okay. Wrestling Tinder. So okay. <laughs> I always got to chuckle. I like that. Um, it's... <laughs> So much like regular Tinder, if you're interested, you swipe right. If you're not interested, you swipe left. And I got to, the, the pressure's on me to try and rack my brains for something that you might be interested in. Okay. Okay. So swipe left means I'm not interested. Yep. And that's fine. You don't have to, if you are, you swipe right and then you go into your opinion, thoughts, agree, disagree with it. Okay. Okay. Uh, a big topic recently or more so over the last few years, uh, as it's come with as as it comes to independent wrestling, what have to happen to be intergender wrestling? Left, I'm swiping left. Not a problem. Okay. Um, again, uh, difference in styles um, and more generations. The the more traditional, so the Rip Rogers and Randy Savages are more um, have a more traditional belief and perspective as it applies to wrestling. Whereas today, um, a lot of indie talent feels more is better. I'm going to swipe right for some reason. Okay, go for it. I, I see both sides of, of that. The thing that gets, I'm, I'm going to try to see who I could use as my best example. I'll use Seth Rollins as my, as my best example. Uh, and I'll use Pac, Adrian Neville, and all those guys, as a matter of fact, all that group that came, Sammy Zane and all those guys. Mm-hmm. And the hardest thing for them to understand was they were doing so well at what they did that that's what got them hired. And while no one was telling them don't do that anymore, you're trying to make them understand that, that do it, just pick your spots now. It doesn't have to be every night. So I think the whole thing is trying to, I think we have to literally sit down in this day and go, we want you to have longevity. Nobody wants to invest in you for a couple of short years. We'd rather invest in you for that 10, 12, 15-year run. That's kind of unheard of anymore. So, and, and I think it's the delivery. Don't take all the bumps, don't do the stupid stuff, yada, 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 yada. Kids don't want to hear that because, and I use ricochet. They're very successful. They're good at what they do. But to do that 300 nights, you know, a, a, a year, 280 or 220, 200, let's say. You've got to have longevity and you've got to be able to to answer the bell because once you give people that, that thing, you have to deliver that all the time or you start 
know this is what people love me for, then you have to stay where you're at and do that. Or you have to adjust to the old school mentality a little bit so you have that longevity and can enjoy the fame that you're building for yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Do you think audiences become desensitized by, they see a 630, uh, which is you know, the ricochet finisher, um, every day, all the time, and 450s happening, and uh, moonsaults like galore, and everything, it just seems seamless. Does it mean it, less? It, I think it has less, less effect for the true wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. They've seen it all now, and nobody's going to, there's nothing to reinvent, because now if I, came, if I came out on Monday night next week and did the moonsault, they'd be like, big deal, we've seen it. But there's a time and a place for everything, and, and you know now you got to be a good storyteller, so your stuff makes sense. But I think I think that the the fans are desensitized to it, and now I think they just like get involved in the argument of these guys are great, so what? Unfortunately, old school thinking is you're only great till the next guy who's willing to go through the car crash does a little bit more than you. Yeah. So then are you out of the business or are you still there being relevant, making money and still holding your, your piece of the pie? Well said. Um, we're going to throw out one last wrestling Tinder question. Um, a wrestler's success is based on booking. I don't know I'm going to swipe right, but I'll swipe right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, again, you can disagree that the whole idea is also to disagree with the statement. Um, I do disagree with the statement. Okay. That's it. Go for it. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the easy way out. I think that's the easy, the easy way out is they, they booked me wrong, so I didn't shine. Yeah. Okay, so there needs to be more to a person's success than just, you know, making the most of what they're given, more so? But Yeah. Make, uh, I think that's it. If you make the most of what you're given, you're going to be given more. Mm-hmm. In uh, a perfect world. Yes. Ideally. Um, and it's what you do with that three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, um, shine and, and, and the world will shine with you, especially in the ring. Exactly. And, and so much more nowadays than any other time, it's not even so much what you're doing in the ring. What can you do out of the ring that makes you relevant as well? I just O'Neal. Exactly. So much is a crazy business. It is indeed. We would definitely like to thank you, Bill, for your time and your energy. And oh, thank, thank you thank you again for joining us. I, I appreciate it. Uh, again, thank you. Thank you to all your, your podcasters and, and uh, thanks to the wrestling world. And uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Definitely. On behalf of Bill DeMont, this is Mark Madison for the Pro Wrestling Post podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Pro Wrestling Post Podcast with your host, Mark Madison. And we'd also like to thank Bill DeMott for his time. Once again, visit ProWrestlingPost.com for interviews, blogs, and upcoming events in your area. Find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever podcast app you prefer. Once again, thank you.